Journalists and other separating boils on the buttocks of human degradation are insisting that the Biden classified document scandal, in which the then vice president removed some classified documents to personal locations in a harmless frolic that could have happened to anyone, is entirely different from the Trump classified document scandal, in which Trump removed some classified documents to personal locations in violation of the laws of God and man. On CNN, Christiane, I'm a poor journalist, turned to the camera and spoke directly to her audience, saying, quote, Listen, Mr. Soros, there is absolutely no similarity between the Biden case and the Trump case at all. Trump illegally stashed hundreds of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, the sort of white supremacist luxury hotel where no BIPOC could possibly afford the price of even a simple lobster salad, which is totally racist, though the citrus vinaigrette dressing is, I admit, delicious. Biden, on the other hand, by pure accident, left nine or ten documents safely under lock and key at the Penn-Biden Center for Global Engagement, a perfectly secure and respectable Chinese communist front operation. And okay, there are also a few documents in his garage, some in his house, a harmless page or two in the apartment of Hunter Biden's mistress, Fang Fang Jinping, and perhaps an idle scribble in the completely sealed pouch stuffed inside the hollow plastic stone that makes up part of the secret dead drop outside the Shanghai Spice Restaurant, conveniently located across the street from the Chinese embassy in case anyone there would like some Kung Pao chicken with his classified documents. What's more, whereas Trump kept his heinous crime secret from anyone who didn't happen to be looking at his social media feed, President Biden was completely transparent and immediately told the press absolutely everything as soon as the midterms were over and an anonymous source had already leaked the story to CBS. In fact, the president was so transparent that even after he had told the press absolutely everything, he went on to tell them even more things when it turned out more documents had been found that he hadn't told anyone about when he told them absolutely everything. The president has pledged he will continue to be transparent and tell even more things every single time it becomes impossible to avoid it, unquote. Democrats, and other separating boils on the buttocks of journalists, were also rushing to explain the differences between the two cases as quickly as they could make them up. At a White House press conference, Biden's spokeswoman, Corrine Jean Identity Hire, told reporters with a straight face, quote, As White House spokeswoman, let me speak plainly. The concatenation of internal rebar has obviously unfurled the dominant carrier of Calidocious, unquote. Miss Jean Identity Hire then pointed behind the press corps and shouted, Look over there, Prince Harry is exposing his frozen penis to that enormous Lizzo woman. Then when the journalist turned to look, Miss Jean Identity Hire quickly ran out the door, screaming in Mandarin, Start the engine, Fang Fang, here I come. On The View, a show that acts as a kind of marriage therapy by making husbands thank the Lord they're not married to one of the women on The View, View host and raven-voiced idiot Joy Behar said, quote, Look, we all know Donald Trump is a liar, whereas Biden is as honest as any other award-winning PhD who faced down corn pop before getting arrested for marching with Martin Luther King. So when Donald Trump takes classified documents, we know he's up to no good. But when Biden takes classified documents, we can be absolutely certain we'll soon be in a nuclear confrontation with Russia to pay the Ukrainians back for all the sweet graft they gave to Hunter, which is only fair since Biden got 10%, unquote. Both scandals continue to unfold as the FBI agents who raided Mar-a-Lago to seize Trump's papers at gunpoint go about filing those papers in the National Archives under T for totally unimportant. 
The agents swear they will also vet Biden's papers very carefully as soon as they catch up with Fang Fang and get them back. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing It's a wonderful day, hooray, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray. Oh, hooray, hurrah. We are back laughing our way through the zombie apocalypse. Uh, we'll be talking a lot of zombie apocalypse today. We'll talk about The Last of Us, which is a new show about the zombie apocalypse and the worldwide war over information, which is also a sort of zombie apocalypse. And uh, I think I'm going to have to start with this uh, Stephen Crowder kerfuffle, which is a zombie apocalypse of its own. Uh, this is a lovely time, beautiful weather. The weather's nice. It's a perfect, lovely afternoon uh, to subscribe to the Andrew Claven YouTube channel. You want to go on my specific personal YouTube channel, you will get exclusive content from me there. Uh, and if you ring that little bell, uh, someone you don't know will die, uh, but you will will inherit millions of dollars. None of that is true. Uh, oh, but here, this is true. If you leave a comment there and it's just absolutely morally reprehensible, we will read it on the air because it will just blend in with everything else we're doing. This is from Craig uh, Simmons. He says, girl, hey, want to come over and watch a movie or something? My parents are gone for the weekend. Me. No, I'm watching this funny bald man play video games and talk about Prince Harry's frozen sausage. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's an actual, uh, you know, exchange that was, uh, you know, that's a transcript. Uh, and I just wanted to get as many Harry's frozen sausage jokes into the front end of the show. Our friends at GenuCell Skincare have exciting news to celebrate. In 2023, they're introducing their new microbiome moisturizer, which uses the power of probiotics to target skin redness, pesky wrinkles, fine lines, patchy blotches, and other signs of premature aging. These are the same probiotics that are in your yogurt. As it turns out, these super ingredients can have the same nourishing benefits on your skin as they do for your stomach. Probiotic extracts target bad bacteria and restore balance to your skin's protective barrier. Now, every GenuCell most popular package includes their new probiotic moisturizer free with your order. My talent manager, Tessa, uses GenuCell every day. I'm, I'm tired of talking about how beautiful she is, but she is fantastically beautiful. Right now, you can get GenuCell's most popular package for 70% off. Visit GenuCell.com slash and get your probiotic moisturizer today. Use code Clavin at checkout for an extra 10% off your entire package. That's GenuCell.com slash Clavin. GenuCell.com slash You probably want to know how to contact Tessa, but instead I'll tell you how to spell Clavin. It's K-L-A-V-A. All right, I, you know, I, I was going to leave uh, talking off talking about Crowder off till the end um, of the show and just address it briefly, but it's kind of blown up, and I, I'm only going to talk about this one time. Uh, I didn't want anybody to think I was avoiding it, so I'm going to talk about it. Um, I talked about it already on the All Access a little bit, um, but I, I do think I have to talk about it, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll explain it all. I'm very, I'm really sad about it. It is, it has made me unhappy. Uh, there are, um, there are 
sexual deviance in our schools, teaching children that they may be a different sex. Uh, you know, there are people trying to destroy the First Amendment, very powerful forces out to destroy the First Amendment, out to get stop the Second Amendment, without which you won't have a First Amendment. Uh, to see people on the right fighting among themselves uh, is absurd. It's, it's wrong, and it's not what should be happening. And to know that, like, the clowns at Media Matters are eating popcorn uh, and watching this and enjoying this is really... Uh, really disturbing to me. So I'm sure at this point everybody knows what happens, but uh, Crowder, uh, who has been a, a pal of mine since the PJTV days and um, always uh, always have loved the guy, uh, he, um, he left the blaze and he got into a preliminary conversation with Jeremy about coming here. Uh, and Jeremy gave him a sort of, you know, uh, agreement document that they could start the conversation with. It, it didn't work out. They separated. Uh, and then uh, I think it was a couple of months later, uh, it, it began to seem to Crowder that, that some of the uh, clauses in this offer, which was not even an offer, it was just a preliminary document, uh, were uh, evil. Uh, they were basically giving in to big tech and all this stuff. Um, and um, so he went on YouTube, and he didn't name us. But uh, look, this how this is the day of social media. Not naming somebody is not is not going to last very long. And uh, he called us. Uh, what did he call us? Big Con, I guess. So it's big conservative, but it's also big con. Uh, and Jeremy responded by putting out the entire deal, the entire con offer, the, you know, as, as whatever it is, whatever you want to call it, is online. So you can judge for yourself. And uh, you know. I, I'll let you judge for yourself. I'm not going to get into, you know, Ben will probably do a great thing about uh, going through the details of it all. That's his bailiwick, not mine. Um, my attitude about this is obvious. Um, I don't have to work here. I've had offers from other places. I can do other things for money. I work here because I love it. I love it here. And I have loved watching it grow from what it was, which was really just me and Ben. Uh, okay, there was Knowles eventually too, but uh, you know, we all make mistakes. No, I mean, I've, I've loved watching it grow. And, and the reason I love working, and listen, I, I literally have turned down more money uh, than I get here to stay here because I love it and because I love what we're doing and because I think what we're doing is so important. But the reason I love it more than anything and more than the cause, more than the the stuff we're producing, although all that is incredibly gratifying, is I love the people here. I always have. I always have. I've seen uh, Ben Shapiro walk into riots to say what he wants to say. Uh, I, know, I, I know I make fun of Michael Knowles. We're a couple of New Yorkers. We wouldn't know we loved each other if we didn't uh, insult each other. Uh, but I have seen Michael Knowles sacrifice very good gigs because of he to say the things that he wanted to say. They got him canceled, obviously. Uh, Matt Walsh and Candace get all kinds of hate, vicious hate. I don't even know if they talk about it on the air. Terrible things. And as you know, if you followed me at all, I've lost uh, almost an entire career uh, to the things that I've wanted to say. I still have to fight every day to get the things on uh, into into my books and uh, that I want to say um, because because of my opinions just aren't fashionable. You know, they're they're obviously go against this left wing grain. So. I'm, I'm here at a place, we're all here at a place, uh, where guys on Twitter who don't even have the guts to put their real name on their Twitter feed call us sellouts when we say something they disagree with or say, oh, we're, we're giving in to this one or we're you know, being paid off by that person. None of that is ever happening. I, 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 I 
tell you the honest-to-God truth. That is never happening. And the things I hear them say about us, and again, these are people on Twitter. I'm not talking about Stephen now. There's people on Twitter who don't even put their real names on their feed. Uh, but instead, what I see is I see people of integrity, all of whom disagree with each other a little bit. We're all conservatives. We all love our country. We all love our liberty. But we all think about different ways of saving it and come out of, uh, of different directions. And we disagree a lot behind the scenes, but also on backstage we disagree. You know, we, we argue with one another uh, openly. All of this is here uh, because of Jeremy. And uh, I hate saying anything nice about Jeremy because picking on Jeremy is one of my favorite things to do. Uh, but I love the guy. And uh, what he has done here uh, is a, a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. Uh, he is, uh, you know, he has a genius for doing this. He has a genius for bringing out the best in people on air uh, and a genius for making, uh, making us go in the our, go with our strengths and and bring those strengths out uh just a brief a brief story when i f- felt that my the quality of my show was um w- was falling off because i was doing too much of it i went to him and said you know I don't think I can keep this up at four days a week. It's not fun for me anymore. And the minute I said it's not fun, he said, oh, well, then we have to change. We have to rearrange that right away. I mean, how many many bosses have you worked for who react to your saying you're not having fun by making sure that you can have fun uh, doing what you do? Uh, He is a a shrewd, uh, crafty businessman, but an honest man. And so, in other words, I don't have to explain what I think about these two versions of events, uh, because I would not be here if I thought this was an immoral organization. As I say, I don't need to be here. Uh, I can go other places. I can go nowhere if I want, just sit at home and play video games. But I'm I'm here because I genuinely, genuinely love it, and I love the people here. Uh, Jeremy uh, at the very top of the list. So Crowder, I, I love Crowder too, but Crowder is a very, very different kind of person. And um, and I think that the, the whole point to me about this is that the Daily Wire is a good thing. It is a good thing. It is a thing that didn't exist before. I'm not saying we were first in the field. I would think Fox would have to be first in the field, but we are a new, different, uh, more culturally oriented uh, thing with bigger plans than just Fox News. All the stuff that I used to make speeches about to people saying, why isn't, aren't people imitating Fox News? Why aren't they doing more? Why aren't there Fox movies and Fox comedy and all that? So all of that stuff we're doing here, and it's incredibly gratifying to me to be a part of it. It's incredibly uh, fun to me. This is a good thing, okay? Now, the people, again, these fake name people on Twitter are always casting about about our purity. None of us is, nobody's pure. We all are people of integrity, but of course we're not pure. We make mistakes. We're wrong about things. We sometimes zig when we should zag because we're human beings. But these are people of real integrity, of very solid integrity. And that's an amazing thing to have that many people in one building, uh, you know, who actually do the thing that they have to do. And and to have a guy like Jeremy who, who just said, who never, never once, never once comes in and says, don't say that because I disagree or don't say that because I don't like it or don't say that because, you know, I'll be embarrassed. Not once, ever. So that that's the world we live in. And, you know, the stuff that you see on YouTube uh, or on Twitter, uh, people saying this is why they did this, it's almost all untrue. It's almost all untrue. And especially for somebody like me who uh, is is a, 
lives on another planet. I'm an artist. I live in a, in a world of imagination, and I hope in a spiritual world. Uh, all my life, uh, God has sent people who will uh, watch out for me and take care of me. And Jeremy is one of those people, you know, who puts me in a place where I can do what I do and give to you whatever I have to give to you, uh, and uh, and make that work. And just one more note about that, and then I'll get back to the Crowder thing. You could bug my house. You could put a, a listening device in my house, and you would not hear me express something other than chasing my wife around the room or whatever personal things are going on. You would not hear me express an opinion that I haven't told you. You know, I've told you everything, and I've never hidden my opinions from you. And that's just what we do here, and it's, it's a beautiful thing. Now, Stephen Crowder is also a good thing. He's a different thing. He's a very different kind of uh, guy. Stephen Crowder has made me laugh sometimes till I, I couldn't see straight. Uh, he, he's done things like, for instance, uh, walked <laughs> into a, uh, a Muslim bakeries and asked them to, to bake, uh, you know, a cake for a gay wedding um, as a joke. As, that, that's hilarious. I would never do that. Not because I'm afraid, because I'm really not afraid of very much but because I'm decorous and I do a different thing. And we at The Daily Wire, I don't think, would do that. I don't really think he would fit here at The Daily Wire because we are more decorous. We do uh, fight in different ways. We fight, but we fight in different ways. Jeremy is a guy with a strategy, a long-term strategy, to beat the left at its own media game, right? He's a very, very clever, uh, brilliant guy at figuring out how to beat the left at its own game. And sometimes that means zigging, you know, sometimes that means kind of not doing it directly, kind of going around the, you know, it, all this talk about warriors and this is a war and all this stuff, you know, you, you've got to play with strategy to win a war. And we have come a long, long way with Jeremy guiding the ship. So he, that's the way he's doing what he does. Stephen Crowder, God bless him, you know, throws himself at the wall. He just throws himself at the wall and he does hilarious stuff and he does different stuff. And we need both those things. We need both those things on uh, on the right to beat the left. We need all kinds of things. And I'm glad to see that it's all happening and I'm really sorry. And I, listen, I'm not saying anything to you. I wouldn't say to Stephen in person and haven't just said to Stephen in person. I think he did the wrong thing. If he doesn't like Jeremy's business model, let him build his own business and take, you know, compete with Jeremy. Uh, and then Jeremy will have to change and then he'll have to adapt. If that's what he thinks, if that's what he thinks the right thing to do is, and he thinks it's possible to do it another way, and I'm, I'm sure there are other ways to do it, let Crowder do that, you know? And then I have to just address one more thing because this happened uh, after I talked to Stephen. Uh, he, he recorded a conversation with Jeremy. I'm going to put this as kindly as I can out of uh, my love for Stephen. That's a moral error, okay? That, that's, that, you have to have lost touch with something to do that. That is a moral error. Uh, and I'm and, and I'm sorry he did it, and I, I I wish he would think that over again, think think about that some more. Now I've listened to what some of the other guys are saying. I think Matt Walsh made some really good comments on Twitter. Uh, I didn't go on Twitter because I was annoyed with all the uh, fake name guys, but uh, I, and I saw what Candace did. I got to admit, it made me laugh out loud. I mean, God, it was so Candace. Uh, she just ripped Crowder to pieces. Um, and I love I love her to death, and I, you know, I thought that was, uh, it made me laugh because it was just Candace all over. But that's not where I think this should go. Uh, I think it's got to stop. And I think, I hope, I hope, I'm not in, I'm not in control of all these people, and I know Jeremy won't tell them what to do, but I hope uh, that we leave it alone from here on. Because 
these, this is not the fight I want to be in. Um, you know, when, <laughs> when you think, if you think a friend is doing something wrong, you, you tell, it, tell him that. And then if you think that there's a right way to, you, you can do it, go off and do it. And that's what I think Crowder should have done. He should build, um, he should build his own business. Let him compete with Jeremy. And if his business model works better than Jeremy's, Jeremy will adapt it. Uh, but I, I just I just want to tell you that Jeremy is not doing an immoral thing. He's doing a smart, long-term thing. He has a long-term plan. He, I think he's talked about it openly in his town halls and all this. Uh, and I think that uh, it's, it's important. So I think maybe uh, Stephen misunderstood or maybe there was something else going on in his head. But this is not a battle between uh, good and evil and, and all this. And all this stuff about heroism and purity and all that. This is not what this is. This is a long-term fight. It took the left 60 years to take our culture over. 60 years, okay? This is not going to happen overnight. We're not going to win overnight. We're going to have to make some back off sometimes. We're going to have to make some um, some compromises along the way. But we will win over time if we play it, uh, play it right. And, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know how to, how to put this. Like, I... I, I Money, you know, we're supposed to be capitalists. We're supposed to want to make money. And there's nobody faster than the right that says, you're just doing this for money. But of course we're not just doing this for money. I can do things, other things, for more money. You know, those avenues close to me because I do this thing. We're not just in it for money. But, but, money always is a temptation and always offers problems. It always offers problems because there's a tendency to want to do what you do for money. When people say, oh, you know, Clavin didn't say that the um, the election was stolen because he was being paid this or he was being paid. No, I lost audience when I said that. Knew I would lost, lose audience. I did it because I was telling you the truth. On the right, money, the temptation for money is to hate people. If you hate people, if you project hatred and fear, if you tell people that the left is destroying the country and the country's finished and you have you just despair, you might as well despair unless you send me 25 bucks, you will get more money. If you tell people to hate the people who you oppose, you will make more money. If you tell them to be afraid, you will make more money. If you tell them that we can win this and this is a fight we're in, it's going to take time and we're going to do the right thing and we're going to be the good guys in this, you'll make less money. The temptation from money is always to make people hate and fear. It always is on the right specifically, although on the left too in, in some ways. So all I want to say is <laughs> be a little slow. Be a little slow to hate people because people are getting paid to teach that to you. But most importantly, be incredibly slow to turn us one against another. I know it's a temptation. I don't know what it is about the right that loves doing this, that loves getting you know, right-wingers to fight with each other. That's not the fight. We have, a different, we have a range of ideas, a range of feelings, but they all are for freedom. They're all for America. They're all for the, the right that we are trying to protect. If we're going to fight among ourselves, we're dead. We're dead. Stephen should have known this when he started out. This was the mistake, as I told him, this is a mistake he made. He should not have taken this, uh, the, you know, this big con stuff on air. Uh, he should have just built his own business. I hope he does, and I hope he succeeds at it. No one will be happier than me to see uh, Crowder succeed making his own business in another way. But 
please, if you are looking at this place and thinking this is the heart, uh, the throbbing heart of evil, uh, you you do not know what you're talking about. This is one of the best things that has happened to this culture, uh, really, since I've been around, and you know that since the Civil War. So uh, let us get back to the fight against the bad guys because they are really bad. They are really doing bad things, and we really have to stop them. And the only way we can do that is through the culture. And this place has made more inroads into the culture than any place else. And that's I'm going to leave it there, not come back to it uh, again. If you own a small to medium-sized business that kept employees on payroll through COVID, you may have a big cash refund waiting for you. The Employee Retention Credit is a tax credit of up to $26,000 per employee. Right now, more businesses than ever qualify. The experts at Refunds Pro can help you cut through the red tape and qualify for this government program. Most of their refunds are over $100,000. Even businesses that have received PPP funds may be eligible. And there are absolutely no fees unless you receive a refund. There's no reason not to apply if your business experienced shutdowns, limited capacity, supply chain challenges, or reduced revenue due to COVID, you likely qualify. Refunds Pro has already helped hundreds of businesses. Don't lose the refund you're owed by missing the deadline. Get started today with a free five-minute questionnaire at refundspro.com. That's refunds with an S, pro.com. All right, in the culture segment today, I'm going to talk about The Last of Us, this HBO series, which is based on the video game about a zombie apocalypse. But I want to start... uh, and talk a little bit about something that was on the show. Uh, You know, I always compare uh, the invention of the internet to the invention of the printing press. And I sometimes uh, talk about the fact that the, the printing press powered the Reformation, the rise of the Protestant churches, and it put the um, by spreading the word around. So you could get, you know, you could get a Bible that you translated out to more people. Uh, and I talk about the fact that the, the Catholic church reacted to that in an attempt to hold on to a monopoly on interpretations of the Bible. And sometimes I feel that people might mistake me for saying that the Catholic Church is the bad guy somehow there. Uh, but no, that's not what I believe. I believe much of much greatness has been given to the culture by the Catholic Church. There's no question about it that it has been an overall a force for good in Western civilization. However, however, even if every word that comes out of the Vatican is the truth, there came a time in, you, in the history of humanity when it was time for men to make up their own minds. It was time for men to be free to discuss and disagree and say, I'm not going to agree with what the Catholic Church is. And people who have power, no matter who they are, Catholics, Protestant Jews, whoever they are with power, want to keep a hold of that power. And so as the printing press began to spread information, uh, the Catholic Church reacted. And one of the ways they reacted uh, was with the the famous Council of Trent in uh, between 1545 and 1563, um, and they talked about how you know what they how they wanted to reform the Catholic Church to answer some of the accusations of the Protestants. And one of the things that was happening is the Protestants were taking the art out of churches because they were saying it was idolatrous. They were being iconoclast uh, and taking the church out. And so the at the Council of Trent, uh, they wanted to reform art that was used in Catholic churches and, and for Catholics. And this is one of the things, they, a statement they said about, um, about art from now on. They said, every superstition shall be removed. Now remember, these are paintings 
but paintings, the, the normal people couldn't read. So paintings was where they got their information. So they were like movies today. I mean, this is where people got their information from paintings on the wall. That's how they learned about the gospel. That's how they heard the gospel stories, was not from reading, because they couldn't read. They would see the paintings on the wall. So they were talking about the paintings. They said, every superstition shall be removed, all filthy lucre. That's money will be abolished. Finally, all lasciviousness will be avoided in such wise that figures shall not be painted or adorned with a beauty exciting to lust, nor the celebration of the saints, the visitation of relics, be by any perverted into revelings and drunkenness, as if festivals are celebrated to the honor of the saints by luxury and wantonness. It was like the Hayes office reforming the movies. The Hayes office saying, oh, there's not going to be any sex acts. There's not going to be any bad guys who win. Uh, we're not going to romanticize gangsters anymore. That was what the Hayes office did to the American movie industry. And, and they said, we're not going to have uh, interracial marriages. Now, this had a, a big effect. The most famous result of this Council of Trent was the painting of uh, coverings of uh, drapery on the nudes in the Sistine Chapel. The Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo Sistine Chapel, was a scandal uh, because he just painted so many nudes. There were so many like backsides and, and frontsides and all this stuff. And after, it was about a year after Michelangelo died, uh, they started painting, as you see, all these very colorful draperies uh, on people uh, covering up uh, their their private parts. And this was in a reaction to the Council of Trent. So there was, again, it was like the Hayes office. They were kind of cleaning stuff up a little bit. And then there were paintings that were specifically geared to make theological points against the Protestants. So here is a painting. I just kind of quickly selected one of the Virgin Mary by Ludovico. And you can see she's kind of floating in air, which is to uh, represent uh, the... Um, the Immaculate Conception, which the Protestants didn't agree with. Uh, she has two saints with her, St. Francis and uh, St. Jerome, who were both big supporters of the Immaculate Conception idea. And the idea of Mary as an intercessor, uh, as an almost, not a not an inhuman figure, but an almost holy uh, uh, figure that the Protestants were dialing back. So this was an argument they were making. This was almost, you might say, propaganda. At the same time, at the same time, these paintings in the Counter-Reformation were absolutely beautiful, and they are absolutely compelling. And so I'm not saying this was bad. I'm saying it was censorship. It was propaganda, just like the Hayes office. And just like the Hayes office produced really excellent movies from Casablanca and The Wizard of Oz, all the great movies were made during the time of the, the Hayes office. So the censorship and the propaganda didn't necessarily ruin the arts. My point is not whether any individual work of art or any individual piece of propaganda is right or wrong, good or bad. My point is that in an information war, when people are fighting for power, art, words become a weapon. So let's just take a quick look at The Last of Us. I played the original game. I enjoyed it. I stopped just before the ending because I got tired of shooting zombies, but I liked the game. It was It's about a man learning to rediscover his father self by his daughter uh, dies, and so he, he can't really become a father again, but now he has to transport this young girl uh, across the country, and his sense of himself as a man and a father comes, comes back to him. It's very, very touching. Then I started to play the second game, and I did a video about this because it was infuriating. It was all about lesbians and transgender people and had nothing to do with the original story. All the men were treated like garbage. They were killed in angry, hideous ways. The sex, there were sex scenes suddenly, uh, and the sex scenes, you couldn't even tell who, you know, whether it was two men and two women. And, and the guys who made the thing were saying, if you don't like this sex scene, then you've never had sex. And I thought, well, you're talking to the wrong guy on that regard because I don't like him. <laughs> and I'm still having more sex than you guys are. The, in the video game industry are having. So I just, 
I, I was infuriated, not because I care whether anybody is uh, gay or not, because I, I truly, I know a lot of you get angry at me about it, but I truly don't care, uh, but because I didn't like them propagandizing and destroying what the original story was about. Now, there's a, a video site on YouTube called Heavy Spoilers Clips, and the guy put together uh, a comparison between the game and the movie. And the game and the show, the HBO show, are very, very similar. In fact, impressively similar. Uh, so here's a little clip just showing uh, the scene. This is a scene of Joel, this, the hero of the story, with his original uh, daughter. They're sitting together, and she's had her watch repaired. I think this is... It's what? nice, but I I think it's stuck. It's not... What? No, 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 no. Oh, ha-ha. Did you? What? I don't hear anything. <laughs> Where did you get the money for this? Where'd you get the money for this? Drugs. I sell hardcore drugs. Drugs. I sell hardcore drugs. It's better when I do. <laughs> so it's very, very close, but there's one big difference. One big difference in the game... The daughter is white. In the uh, in the show, the daughter is mixed race, about probably half black, half white, because you're no longer allowed to have two white people get married. So that, that it's again, I think I actually think interracial marriage is a good thing. I ha I'm in one. Uh, my wife is an, you know an English Irish uh, mutt, and I am Ashkenazi Jewish, so it's a mixed race marriage. Uh, and I think that's one of the wonderful things about America that you don't have to have Romeo and Juliet where people kill each other. You can just uh, have the marriage, uh, and it, great. But I'm just pointing out that everywhere you look now, everywhere you look, a certain group of people are trying to push propaganda on you to maintain the power that they feel is under threat from, uh, from the internet, from the spread of information. And it is under threat because the time has come. Just like in the Reformation, whether the Catholics were right or wrong on any given point, the time had come for people to make up their own minds. The time had come for people to think freely, to live freely, uh, to make mistakes freely, to lo lose their faith freely. All those things were part of God's plan in that moment in time. And this moment of time, that has come again. It is now time for every man, every person, to be able to build the life that he wants and have the thoughts that he wants and express the ideas that he wants. And the people who want to stop that, the, what I call the clerisy, this word from Coleridge, uh, meaning the people, the opinion makers, the culture makers, the power makers, want it to stop. And every single word that we see and every single work of art that we see has to be a piece of propaganda, has to push a certain idea. Now, I don't like the idea they're pushing because they say that what they tell us is that it's about uh, tolerance. But is it? At the Sundance Film Festival, an indie, very powerful indie film festival, uh, before you can buy a ticket online now, you now have to sign on uh, to a statement saying uh, that you commit to being inclusive and respectful of people of every race, ethnicity, gender, identity, expression, disability, sexual orientation, nationality, religion, age, physical appearance, and body size, language spoken, and immigration or economic status by refraining from demeaning, discriminatory, or harassing behavior or speech. So you cannot have an opinion, and if you do, if you about, for instance, sexuality uh, or whether somebody should be obese or not, uh, if you do have an opinion, that will be reported to the safety and belonging team. That doesn't sound too Orwellian, does it? So you can't even get into the show if you don't sign on. And if you think that they're not being small-minded, the, the problem is they are, so, they are, because they're defending power, not tolerance, they're defending power, not tolerance, they're not small, they're not being broad-minded at all. They're not being open-minded at all. You know, 
when you when religious people object to homosexuality, it's not because it, oh it's in the Bible, so I have to object to it. It's because religious certain religions have an entirely different way of looking at the body. That's an argument that you can make. Those are things that you can believe. But now, if you're a, a bake, cake baker in Colorado and you've refused to celebrate. Not just to tolerate, but to, if you refuse to celebrate a gay wedding, they spend their time, a lot of their time, trying to destroy you. Just the other day, uh, Philadelphia Flyers, uh, the, the hockey team, uh, Ivan Provorov, his name is, he was a defenseman. I don't follow hockey, but they had, <laughs> for some reason, they had the gay pride night, uh, and they wanted him to wear a rainbow jersey, and he said no because he's Russian Orthodox. And when they asked him about it, here's what he said. I respect everybody, and I respect everybody's choices. My choice is to stay true to myself and my religion. That's all I'm going to say. Any, like I said, that's all I'm going to comment on that. Um, if you have any hockey questions, I would like I would answer those. Just your, so. you just your what is your religion? Hmm? If I keep what that your religion? religion, Russian Orthodox. All right, so, so he respects everybody, but he also respects himself and his religion. And so that's, that's true inclusion. That's true inclusion. He's not celebrating gay uh, homosexuality because he thinks it's wrong, and he thinks it's wrong because the Russian Orthodox religion has an entirely different approach to the body. It's an entire philosophy. You have to be able to live it out. That's what freedom of religion is. Here is a response from a Canadian news anchor, Sid, I don't, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Sexiero. Uh, here's his response to this when he says that's not right because uh, hockey is for everyone, so it's not for this guy. I just think the NHL has to do something here. This is not good enough. This is not good enough. Hockey is for everyone, dot, 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 unless, unless you don't agree with gay rights is not the phrasing of this. You're either in this or you're not. And one last point. Nothing scares me more than any human being who says, I'm not doing this because of my religious beliefs. Because when you looked at people's lives, you normally say that publicly, you'd throw up at what you saw. You would throw up at what you saw. And I have seen that a million times in a lot of different ways. So don't, don't give me that. With respect. Don't give me that because no one's perfect. All right? Don't, tell me, don't, don't feed me the religious beliefs line. And all of a sudden, the NHL is going to back off this. The National Hockey League today needs to find that organization a million dollars and reevaluate how they support gay rights. That's an, it's an amazing uh, intolerance. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. I, I'm not saying that didacticism or censorship destroys or uh, controlling what a, a, a work of art says destroys the work of art. I'm saying that intolerance destroys a society. Intolerance to protect power destroys a society. And this is intolerance. It doesn't bother me that there are leftist movies. It has never bothered me that there are leftist movies. It bothers me that there are no right-wing movies. And if there is, and if there are, is a right-wing movie, uh, and the entire world falls down on top of it, unless it's from somebody as powerful as Clint Eastwood, and then they just ignore it. Right? If it's American Sniper and it's a huge hit, they just ignore the fact that it has undermined their entire argument. Uh, this is this is the battleground. The battleground is information. The battleground is information because of the internet and the weapons are art and news and lies, right? And the goal, from our point of view, from my point of view, is human liberty. The goal is not to silence the left. The goal is not to silence the left. It is to keep the right from being silenced, which is what is happening. The war is being waged all around us in every single thing that you see, every single thing that you see. There's no reason not to hear from the left if, if you're allowed to speak your mind on the right. And that's the problem we have now. It's not that they're, what they're saying, it's what they're not letting anybody else say. 
You know, it can be tough to stick to your New Year's resolution. You set out with lofty goals, stick to them for two weeks, then you fall right back into your old habits. Lucky for you, here is a goal you can accomplish today. Complete your will with Epic Will. For just $119 and in as little as five minutes, Epic Will can help you create your last will and testament, living will, and even healthcare power of attorney. Their step-by-step online form makes it incredibly easy. All you need to do is fill in the blanks. It is just so important to have a will. I know I'm never going to die, but some other people might die, and you want to make sure the people you leave behind are taken care of. 50% of Americans don't have a will. Choose today to be in that smarter half. Go to epicwill.com and use promo code CLAVEN to save 10% on Epic Will's complete will package. That's epicwill.com, promo code CLAVEN. So you need to know how to spell CLAVEN. So this is a global fight, by the way. It's at least global insofar as the West is, is, is certainly throughout the West, because in the East, they don't really have the problem of letting people speak to begin with. Uh, but they're in, our friends are in Davos. We know that we love the folks in Davos who are always formulating plans for our betterment and to bring, in, um, uh, bring us to utopia by destroying us. And uh, the, this thing about misinformation, right, which is basically information that goes against the church, the church of leftism. It goes against the church of leftism. It's misinformation. So they had a panel on misinformation. I just have to mention this quickly because it cracked me up. And the host of the panel, the uh, guy who's moderating the panel, is Brian Stelter. They needed an, an expert on misinformation, so they brought in Miss Brian Stelter. And he's talking to A.G. Solzenberger, the guy uh, who turned the New York Times into the cesspool it is, or at least helped to do it. And he asks him about misinformation. This is what Solzenberger says. Disinformation... And in the broader set of misinformation, conspiracy, propaganda, clickbait, you know, the, the, the broader um, mix of bad information that's corrupting the information ecosystem, what it attacks is trust. And once you see trust decline, uh, what you then see um, is uh, societies start to fracture. And so you see people fracture along tribal lines and... Um, and, uh, and, you know, that immediately undermines pluralism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the undermining of pluralism is probably the most dangerous thing that can happen to a democracy. So I really, I think if, if you know, if you're spending this week thinking about the health of democracies and democratic erosion, I think it's really important to work your way back up to where this starts. <laughs> I never asked the question whether he should be trusted or not. Who has damaged the trust? Is it the people who are disagreeing with him? Even people who are putting forward phony conspiracy theories, conspiracy theories that don't pan out. It, are they the ones who have violated our trust? Isn't he the guy who runs the newspaper uh, that wrote the funny, phony Russian collusion story for like two, two and a half years or whatever it was, and then gave themselves Pulitzer Prizes to celebrate all the lies? Uh, these are the guys who buried the story about Joe Biden throwing a woman against the wall and sticking his finger up between her legs. Uh, they buried that story, but they played the completely unsubstantiated stories about Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, for weeks on end, they ran stories saying by women saying, well, I was one once assaulted, so Kavanaugh must be guilty. I mean, ge genuinely saying that. Who's destroying trust? The, the uh, 
Prime Minister of New Zealand just announced she's not running. She's a darling of the left. The New York Times says, oh, you know, she was so popular because she kept uh, New Zealand open during COVID. She did not. She locked it down. They're lying about her because she was a gun snatcher and a person who wanted to um, censor, went to the UN and said, we need to censor misinformation. She's, she's basically the authoritarian princess whom they love. She's leaving because when she took away people's guns, Crime in this virtually crimeless society of New Zealand skyrocketed. It's it's on the climb, and so she's losing votes, and, and the economy is doing badly because of her lockdowns. She's losing votes to a center right party, and so they're lying. The New York Times just lying about her. Who is violating their trust? They're not trustworthy. They are not trustworthy. We've seen it again and again. The Twitter files, which I told you, one of the most important stories because it's a story about information. It's a story about this counter reformation moment when uh, the church of leftism is telling us what we can and cannot say, is telling us what every work of art must look like, is telling us what race every character must be. It's in this moment, right, uh, that, th that that Twitter story is speaking into this moment about how bad it is, how the collusion between the FBI and the information gatherers is so deep, the collu collusion between the state and the press and, the, and academia, and they call themselves the resistance. The people they're resisting are you. The thing that they're resisting is the truth. So as we uh, fight this war, the enemy, I think, the main, our main opponent is cultural Marxism. Uh, it's a really interesting and deep subject, and we have a great report on it by Catherine Gorka. Catherine served at the Department of Homeland Security during the Trump administration. She most recently was the director for Civil Society and the American Dialogue at the Heritage Foundation. And she's the co-author of this very thorough report, uh, a Heritage Foundation special report called How Cultural Marxism Threatens the United States and How Americans Can Fight It. Catherine, it's good to have you on. Hey, it is so good to be here. Well, this is um, a terrifying report, but I think before, <laughs> before we get to the terrifying part, I, I want you to explain what cultural Marxism is, why it's cultural, and why it's Marx, and what makes it Marxism. Okay, all super important questions and questions that we also thought were important to answer, and that's part of what we did in the paper. So, um, Marxism. You know, and, and it is something that's really hotly debated. Is this Marxism or not? But I think it is in the sense that um, it really believes it has to tear down what's here. It has to tear down the existing society in order for it to survive. Um, and I think because of the way it uh, for sees the world as oppressor and oppressed. Mm. Those are fundamentally Marxist. Now, a lot of people will say, but this isn't Marxism because it doesn't focus on, you know, the, the economic element of life. No, that's why we call it cultural Marxism. And this is something that came about through the thinking of the Italian communist Antonio Gramsci. He saw in the 1930s that the workers' revolts that Marx had predicted were not happening in the industrialized societies of the West. They weren't happening in the United States. I mean, yes, communism got a foothold here, but it never really took off, right? And Gramsci saw this in the United States, in Italy, in France, in Germany, and he realized that they are not gonna bring about Marxism or communism through a frontal assault of the worker on the middle class, no. We had to have a different strategy, and the strategy was much more subtle. We have to take over the institutions and change the thinking through the institutions. So, you know, in a sense, largely taking over the cultural institutions, the culture, the writing, the literature, the art, 
Hollywood, um, uh, educational institutions. And, and you really saw that transformation here in about 1960, it was sort of a piv pivotal moment with the emergence of the new left. And that's when there was this just tremendous explosion of, you know, Marxism, the new Marxism amongst youth and intellectuals. And it kind of moved away from the worker and moved onto the campus. So that's that's kind of what we're writing about. So, you, you know, you're talking about what's often called the, the long march through the institutions. And this is something that is all, I've always wondered about. How, how intentional was this? I, I mean, I know that philosophers talked about the need for it and Marxists talk about the, the need for it, but was there like a meeting somewhere where they also were all going into the universities or was that just a, a kind of natural place for them to go? Wow, that is such an interesting question. And, and I'm not sure that I can answer it okay. definitively, but what I will say, I mean, what, what Mike and I found, and it was so interesting to dig into this, right, was to find sort of pivotal moments that kind of helped further it along. So I'm going to say I think it was probably a little bit of both. I think there was some discussion somewhere amongst people, yes, this is going to work, but then also they saw it happening. So, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting, there's that there's a moment in 1960 when the Columbia sociologist, uh, C. Wright Mills, kind of observed, you know, he didn't plan this, but he observed the revolutionary movements around the world seem to be happening among the young intelligentsia. So therefore, this is the new left. Boom, that kind of, you know, that that gained traction because people already saw this. But I think it's really interesting when you think about it, just the year before, um, Harvard University invited the young Fidel Castro to come and give a talk. So Fidel, you know, a 32-year-old law student at that point had just, you know, brought about his own revolution in Cuba. You know, I'm sorry, I just have to ask, what the heck were they thinking to invite him to Harvard? <laughs> uh, but they did. And, you know, that, too, sort of sparked. And so there were so many factors, I think, that that led into this. Um, so I'm, I'm going to say I think in some way, you know, I think it was probably a combination of some some planning, some thought, but also some kind of spontaneous, this thing just started gaining speed. And what what exactly is the intention? I mean, when we talk about economic Marxism, we know that the intention is kind of the workers, uh, you know, own their own, the means of production and that everybody's sort of uh, equal. There's no economic injustice. What What is the purpose of cultural Marxism? Well, I think it's, first of all, I think it's constantly evolving and changing. I do think every individual Marxist has their own vision of their utopian future. I mean, let's just take one example, and that would be sort of Black Lives Matter. I mean, okay. they are a perfect manifestation of this cultural Marxism, and they've told us what they want. They want the fa traditional family destroyed. They want children brought up in community. Uh, they want basically a reverse power structure. They want, you know, they want to be in power, you know, or, or conversely take another one, you know, the critical race theorists. What do they want? They want to basically do away with the United States as we know it. I think they'd happily see the constitution go by the wayside. Um, and, and I think this is what's really interesting about, about Marxism at all is the, the very idea that people think they're going to reach some kind of utopian future. Whereas 
those of us who bother to look at history, we know where Marxism goes. Right. And I can guarantee you, all those people that are advocating for cultural Marxism, they will be the first ones to have their heads chopped off. <laughs> well, why, are they, why is, is it, are they so effective? I mean, let, let's, let's start with schools and the academies and all this. Why, why is it so, how is it possible, for instance, that all of a sudden, in, in what seems like 10 minutes, people suddenly believe that a man can turn into a woman? I don't believe that anybody actually thinks that's true. Uh, but why are they so effective at selling their bill of goods? Why does critical race theory uh, and anti-family um, information, anti-American information, why does that catch on so quickly? Well, I don't think it does catch on quickly. I think a part of what's happening is, um, and, I, and I, you know, I think there are many, many factors here. It's, it's intellectuals driving this. It's, you know, I think it's the Soviet Union and China feeding us with din disinformation, manipulating, you know, tensions in the culture. Um, but I will say this, I will point to what I think is one of the really significant um, factors here, and it's our foundations, our, our big philanthropies. Um, so this was another paper that Mike and I did right after we did this one, and it was really, really an eye-opener for me. They have been pumping millions, millions, tens of millions of dollars into this for years now. Mm. And... I think it's, it, you know, money talks. It's, I think it's really, they've been laying the groundwork. They, they fund, you know, and it's, it's not just the big foundations, but let's talk about some of the NGOs as well. But I mean, you know, Planned Parenthood with, with what they fund and Southern Poverty Law Center with what they fund. It all kind of feeds into this sort of same anti-American narrative. It is inter interesting as, uh, as my wife and I look at uh, places to give money, it's very, very hard to find a charity that's not woke and is not promoting a lot of these uh, ideas. What about big business? When you think about Marxism, you think about you know, big business is the enemy, but now it seems that, to some degree at least, uh, the corporate world is on board with critical race theory and on board with gender theory and, and all the other uh, culturally Marxist theories. Why is that? This to me is one of the biggest mysteries. You know, yeah. you think they of of anybody would understand, uh, you know, how 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 effective our free market system is in not just in in allocating resources, but in innovating, in in leading people to prosperity, and you know, and just in so many things that it really kind of baffles me. And all I can say is, I, I guess people get caught up in the van in the bandwagon. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that th this is the, the woke moment. And s s honestly, it, it, it truly, truly baffles me that our corporations above all have, have gone in this direction. And I, I truly, I don't understand it. I, I think they're, they're insane and they're, <laughs> they're foolish. And, you know, I, I, I think if anything, it's, you know, partly we have to blame the universities um, you know, this stuff has been seeping into the universities for, for a long time now. And you think that, you know, every CEO went to an American university, what were they being taught? Um, so I think that's part of the problem too. You know, so you, if you step back now and you say, where are we? What, you know, what's, what's, what's the, if we want to fight back about this, which is the next question I'm going to ask you, but before I get to that, What's the battlefield look like now? Are we uh, completely un routed, or is it fifty-fifty? Or where do you th where do you think we are? 
Oh, no, we are so outnumbered. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. I, I, the battlefield is a little bit scary, but I will say this. You know, when I think about in the long term, when I think about like it's going to be sort of the homeschooled kid kids up against the public school kids, I put all my money on the homeschooled kids, mm. right? So I say, thank God for homeschooling. Thank God for classical education. There are still American youth who are being educated with the right ideas, right? And I think, um, you know, I'm I'm going to put my faith in them. And I, you know, I think the other thing I have to say is the parent of two kids in their 20s. It's been really interesting to see sort of their evolution. Um, I think in a lot of ways, COVID was good for us because I think it showed a lot of kids what it looks like when the government takes control of your life and and they hated it you know mm. it it was irrational it was controlling it was it was unjust they did not like that feeling that their lives were not in their own hands so you know maybe in the long run that's going to be the thing that saves us do you think it's possible to take the institutions back or do we have to start to build new you know you talk about homeschooling but and and I'm very very in favor of homeschooling but it's sort of saying the public schools are a lost cause. Do you think that there's any chance of winning back the the Yale and Harvard, or, or do you have to start again? I I, that, I think again, it's that that's a very very important question. I'll tell you where I put my hope is in the hundred thousand plus members of Moms for Liberty and other organizations like that. All the parents that are now really putting themselves out there to fight for their children in K through 12 education. What I think is going to happen is you've got a whole generation now of parents that have really put themselves on the line fighting for their kids. And I think as their kids go to college, you're going to start to see the fight happening there. I don't think it happened in my generation. You know, we blithely sent our kids off to the schools that we respected when we were young. I think now we know better. Um, but I think it's sort of this next generation. And the only other thing I'll say is I, I do think, I mean, again, this is a tiny movement, but I am encouraged because I increasingly hear of um, colleges and universities that are fighting back. So somebody just told me about Southern Wesleyan University, mm. where they've got a new a new president who said, you know, woke comes here to die. Mm. Um, he is he is really taking a stand. And you do have a handful of those. But boy, I tell you. It, it is It is going to be the fight of our generation. Interesting. Now, you, you know, one, one thing, I've only got like about a minute left, but a lot of people on the right talk about localism. The localism is the answer. We've got to start fighting on the local level. We've got to stop worrying about what's happening at Davos and start, you know, concentrating on our communities. You sort of recommend that in this report. What exactly does that look like in everyday life? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I mean, it means everything from volunteering to be an election officer to running for a local office to, you know, supporting your local candidates, getting out and fighting for your local candidates, getting involved in your local citizen organizations. I 100% agree that it's going to happen. The change is going to happen locally. So you're, you're talking about political action. Uh, what about cultural action? Uh, I mean, I think that's a tougher one because I still think most of the culture is shaped yeah. out there somewhere. It's it's in Hollywood. I mean, I know this is a topic you care passionately <laughs> about. Um, our our wealthy conservatives have to start funding movies and yeah. TV shows to push back against 
Hollywood. So I think on the cultural level, I see that as, as that, that takes big money. It takes big money. Yeah. 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 Uh, Catherine Gorka, really nice talking to you. Uh, the, the report is from the Heritage Foundation on Cultural Marxism. Uh, as I say, it's, uh, it's not comforting, but it's interesting. And I think it's, we have to know it uh, if we're going to fight back. Thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I know you're looking at this beautiful shaved head and saying, how does he get that so beautiful? Jeremy's Razors. Jeremy's Razors is offering a big discount right now, 40% off on all razor subscriptions. Why? I'm glad you asked. One year ago, Joe Biden tried to force vaccines on just about everyone. Here's what Jeremy, co-CEO of The Daily Wire, had to say about that. We won't be enforcing Joe Biden's unconstitutional and tyrannical vaccine mandate. That's it. We'll use every tool at our disposal, including legal action, to resist. What an evil guy. And yes, that's the same Jeremy from Jeremy's Razors, who you may remember from the viral commercial. That, that is how he treats his employees, by the way. Did you see any other CEOs out there publicly suing the government on your behalf? No, you did not. Just Jeremy. And the best part about it is we won. The Biden vaccine mandate is as good as dead. We said do not comply, and you did not comply. In fact, over a million of you signed our petition saying as much. And today, together, we kick the government's ass. So are you going to keep buying from those other guys or from the guy who sued the government on your behalf and won and get ahead like this? And for all the ladies out there, give your man something else to smile about. Every time he picks up a Jeremy's razor, he'll remember just how much you care. Trust me, if he listens to this show too, he'll appreciate you even more. We'll make it even easier for you. Switch now, get 40% off on your razor subscription at jeremysrazors.com. So I want to talk about The Last of Us. This new HBO series uh, got absolutely swooning reviews from both the critics and actual human beings. Uh, this is a Naughty Dog PlayStation game back in 2013. And as I say, I played it almost, I played it to the last scene and then I just I just got tired of shooting. Uh, but I got very annoyed at the sequel, which was filled with uh, sexual deviance, for no reason, and basically, in it was it was so preachy because it was in uh, in conflict with the themes of the original show, which was about manhood and fatherhood, and it just became it just seemed angry and stupid. A lot of people hated it. Uh, they I'm sure they made money off it, but still. Uh, so let me just give you a quick review uh, up top because there's a lot of just other issues that I like to talk about about it because I'm interested in this genre. I'm interested in the genre of uh, zombie movies, first of all, but I'm also interested in the genre of movies that are made from games. There are very few good ones uh, for reasons I'll talk about, but this is good. Uh, this is a, I just saw, obviously, that only the first episode is available. Uh, it's written by Craig uh, Mazin, uh, who wrote Chernobyl, which is unbelievably great, but also kind of comical because Mazin is a lefty who didn't realize that Chernobyl is a wild uh, condemnation of centralized government and Soviet socialism. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't realize it until we started saying it. And then he said, no, it's not. No, it is, but not, but it was. Um, he's, but he's a good writer. Uh, and the first uh, episode stuck very close to the game and it was fun uh, and didn't fall into some of the uh, real problems of um, video game stories. Uh, the lead is a guy from Chile, oddly enough, named Pedro Pascal. Does a great American accent, but he was just perfect. I mean, he was like that. He was like the guy from the game came to life. He really was terrific. Uh, Ellie, the little girl he cares for, that the story is about, is played by Bella Ramsey, who you will recognize from Game of Thrones. Uh, she was the girl in armor. I can't remember her name offhand. Um, 
Now, on the history of video games that I did last week, personal history of video games, I mentioned the tension between gameplay and storytelling. Gameplay is fun when it's fast and kind of repetitive. Uh, It's tight, where storytelling is more varied. So a a thrilling climax to a good story can be a conversation. Uh, It can be a a chase scene. It can be a kiss. Uh, It can be any kind of conversation, a million different kinds of conversation. It can be a philosophical realization. These are all ways that stories can climax. Uh, The wonderful, wonderful Alfred Hitchcock movie, uh, Notorious, ends with a walk down a flight of stairs. It's one of the greatest scenes in all of movies. So uh, a a story can have a million uh, kinds of climaxes. But in games, the climax is almost always going to be a fight. In most video games, in most popular uh, platform video games, the story is going to be a fight, which is limiting story-wise. It generally means, not all the time, but it generally means that story, video game storytelling is stuck in the form of an action movie. Uh, plot development, action. Plot development, car chase. Plot development, action. Everything revo- resolving itself through action. And that can be great. Uh, if, um, if I love I love action movies. Uh, I watch them all the time. They don't obviously achieve the level of art most of the time. Most of the time, they're just kind of fun and brainless and being a fun, brainless kind of person, I enjoy them. Uh, but they can be elevated to really good stuff like The Matrix or Die Hard, which are both action movies. Uh, if the characters are well-drawn, if the idea is really uh, original, if the stakes are high, uh, and if the action, and this is the most important one, is is varied and creative. So if you re- remember um, The Matrix, it had wonderfully new uh, special effects, the slow motion action, the action meant something. The fact that people could do certain things had, had really resonant meaning, having as one of, I think, one of the best prose action writers uh, in the country, uh, I know that if you, could, if you can make action have emotional resonance, uh, it's just much better than just a lot of punching and hitting. Um, and um, Die Hard the same way. Die Hard was one of the greatest action sequences I've ever seen, the one that ends with him uh, jumping off the building with the fire hose, or at least that's in the middle of it. It's just an amazing, amazing sequence of varied action. That's going to be really uh, spectacular, but most video games haven't risen to that level. P- probably because of the technology, it's just easier to do the same things over and over again, but Gears of War is one, I remember, that has really good varied action, really interesting. The Hitman games turn the action into a puzzle, and that's interesting. Uh, Assassin's Creed games are kind of a blend of puzzle and, and action, so it can be done, but most of the time, uh, it is just repetitive. Like even, uh, you know, the, the guy who did um, Last of Us, Neil Druckmann, he was the guy who created uh, or co-created the game at Naughty Dog. He also did one of my favorite game series, Uncharted. Uh, and one of the things I used to hate about Uncharted is it's famous for these endless gun battles just on and on and on. I would always set it at the lowest level, not because, just because I got so bored of the gun, the gunfights. But that happens a lot in video games that the action is kind of repetitive and that plays over into the movies and the movies become repetitive and silly and not very interesting. Uh, in zombie stories, uh, there is a lot of uh, zombie shooting, a lot of shooting zombies. Uh, and that was true uh, in the game, The Last of Us as well. Now, there's one other thing I should say before I talk more about it. I don't like zombie movies. The only zombie movie I ever liked was The Night of the Living Dead. 
their popularity, I think, reflects something in our culture uh, that is the rise of materialism. And when if you take materialism to its further level, where all ideas ultimately go, uh, we're just food. And so why shouldn't we have zombies? Why shouldn't we eat each other? Why, you know, what if you haven't got a soul, what's the, my, the problem with my eating you if I happen to be hungry? Um, so the uh, zombie movies are the ultimate horror movie about uh, materialism. And so that, that's purely personal, that I find them very repetitive, right? Uh, I, and I find them unpleasant. I watched the opening of The Walking Dead. When it first came out, I watched the first episode of The Walking Dead, and I thought, wow, that is really well written, really well plotted. I am never watching that again. Why? Because I watched TV at night most of the time. I didn't want to go to bed after watching a guy who'd been half-eaten crawl across the grass to eat somebody else. I just thought, that's not the image I want to take to bed with me. So I just, you know, I, there are other great things to watch, so I did. Uh, but also, there's a kind of sameness to zombie stories in the same way there's a sameness to all superhero stories. And you can say that there's a sameness to all stories, right? All stories follow certain kinds of rules, but it's a question of degree. If you pick up an anthology of vampire stories, there's a great one called the Dracula uh, Book of Vampire Stories. By the third one, you just get tired of like, yeah, the beautiful girl is losing energy and what's the matter with her and she's pale and what are those two marks on her neck? It's just the same kind of thing over and over again. One of my, to just show you what I mean, but also to sort of talk more about uh, The Last of Us, one of my favorite scenes in all scary movies, one of the scariest movies I ever saw is Night of the Living Dead, made for a dime. You know, it's like, has kind of second-rate actors in it. It's all very, uh, very much, um, you know, it's on, on the cheap, it's on the arm. Uh, but the opening sequence is a brother and sister go to visit their mother's grave and in the background, you don't know anything is wrong with the world. It's a zombie apocalypse, but they don't know it yet. In the background, there's a guy, a spooky-looking guy walking around. Here's the scene. Well, you used to really be scared here. Johnny. You're still afraid. Stop it now. I mean it. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it. You're ignorant. They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it! You're acting like a child! Look, they're coming for you! Look! There comes one of them now! He'll hear you! Here he comes now! I'm getting out of here! Johnny! So he's really coming to get her, but it's so good that he's just wandering around in the back, just this shambling character, uh, and the whole world is coming to an end. That has become a, a standard in uh, zombie apocalypse stories. They always love that moment when something happens in the background because we know the world is coming to an end. We bought our ticket because that's what we came to see, uh, and uh, and and something goes, and something just is a little off in the background. And this one, I have to say, The Last of Us, they do this scene really great. There is a woman who is an old woman uh, that the young girl goes to see in the beginning, and she is deaf and paralyzed and just sitting in a wheelchair staring. And here's here's the scene. I'll keep talking because there's no dialogue in it, but go ahead. I don't know why I talked to her. <laughs> She's... She's completely deaf. She's sitting in the background, out of focus, like in Night of the Living Dead. The, char the character that is scaring you is out of focus, which is scary in itself, by the way. Uh, the young girl 
um, gets up and she's looking around and she's uh, kind of a smart girl. So she starts to, first she looks at the lady in the wheelchair and we get to see she is frozen solid. She is just catatonic, right? She cannot move, she cannot talk, she cannot hear, uh, the, she is gone. And uh, the girl starts looking at the movies. Be right there. And she's taking one down and in the background, <laughs> the lady starts to twitch. And that that was a good scare. That was, I mean, because it's not it's not a jump scare. I hate jump scares. They're cheap. She starts to twitch, and her mouth opens, and she's like, <laughs> you just know she's turning into a zombie. That's scary stuff. It's, it, it's really good, and it's really that's you know it, it takes a. Lot, it's not easy. I, I have been in searches for directors for scary movies. It's not easy to uh, scare people. So. This is a story, an odyssey story. It's a story of a journey that has to be taken, uh, and that gives a fresh feeling to the story. They have a reason to move. Uh, I I don't want to give too much away. Probably most of you who are going to watch it already know the story, but still, I don't want to give too much away. But but Joel, the hero who is grieving uh, his, his lost daughter, has to take a young girl on a trip. And the story from the game is strong. I, I, I get really tired of the feminism. I really do. Uh, I, again, and it's not because, because, well, it is sort of. It's because it's so unrealistic and it's so in your face and it's so preachy. Uh, you know, there, there's a group of revolutionaries because the world has become locked down and they're called the Fireflies. And they're all these really tough women. All the soldiers are these tough women. And I just don't buy it. Who's watching action movies? Who's playing video games? I know there are girls who do, but it's mostly guys. Why can't guys have stories where they rescue women from danger? It is good to train men to imagine rescuing women from danger because women are going to need them one day, and there you want guys who want to do that. So here's a scene of the Fireflies. They're all girls. The team in place at Southeast 3? I held them back. I have some questions. Hmm. Okay. We've been blowing up meaningless FEDRA targets spread out all over the QZ for two weeks. We've already lost four people, and we're... What's the point of this? Is that your question? That's one of them. My answer is to follow f***ing orders. And why do you have some random girl locked in a room, and the guys you have guarding her won't tell me sh? Our people are asking what's going on, and I don't know what to tell them. Tell them to follow f***ing orders! You two, go to Southeast 3, now. Kim. Marlene. We are in a war against a military dictatorship to restore democracy and freedom. Does that sound about right? Yes. Are we winning? Are we beating Fedra here? Are the Fireflies beating Fedra anywhere? Rebellion takes time. If you fight for 20 years and you get nowhere, you're not a rebellion. You just spray paint. So, you know when Matt Walsh says there shouldn't be women announcers in football, and he's being terribly small-minded and bigoted, and I completely agree with him. Uh, and I just don't think, and I also likewise think, that I'm, I get very tired of um, of women warriors in action films. Action films are mostly for guys, but they should really be uh, about guys. They should, they should put people who are going to really be there. If there's a revolutionary force, it's going to be a bunch of guys. Um, and I, I just don't like being preached to, and I, it, uh, I don't like being preached to something that's not real. Um, anyway, the story, I remember the rest of the story. It's fun, it's intense, it's an interesting. People overrate how great the story is. It's not a great story, but it is a good, solid story. And for video games, it's a, it's a really top-notch 
story. Uh, the relationship between Ellie, the girl, and Joel is at the center of it. Uh, here's a, a really good scene uh, where Ellie finds a radio that uses songs from different decades as codes, but she can't figure out what the 80s songs, what the code mean in the code, and she weasels it out of him. Here's that scene. You guys go out there a lot? I guess. When was the last time? Maybe a year, what's it matter? But you know where to go. So we're gonna be okay. Yeah. So what's the deal with you anyway? You some kind of big wig's daughter or something? Something like that. Oh, the radio came on when you were sleeping. What? What was the song? They kept saying, like, like wake me up before you go-go. Gotcha. 80s means trouble. <laughs> it's a good scene. It's charming. It plays back to the original scene with his daughter and, and the watch that we played before. Uh, it's a father trying to break out of a shell of grief. If you love the game, you're going to love the movie. I think this love this show. Uh, it's well done, well acted. Silly feminist propaganda, but it's the small-minded uh, counter-reformation world we are in. And I can't wait for the lesbian sequel to ruin the whole thing. Uh, but enjoy it while you can. It looks like it's going to be really good. So if you are not a subscriber uh, to Daily Wire, Daily Wire Plus, uh, it's almost like walking uh, on a wire without a net because when the wire falls, as indeed it must, as all things fall in the end and you are plunged into the Clavenless week, you are missing this extra 10 minutes of member block uh, in which we will talk about uh, drag queens. Uh, and um, and you just hit the Clavenless, eternal Clavenless week, uh, all that uh all the, all the earlier. However, however, just to show you that we care about you even when you don't subscribe, we will solve all your problems first with the mailbag. 600,000 Hiroshima-class atomic bombs exploding <laughs> every single day on the Earth. Yeah! <laughs> Al Gore. Great, uh, dry, losing elections just drives these guys crazy. All right, from Bradley, dear Clavin, the only man funnier than the lunatics on libs of TikTok. I am trying to decide whether or not to pursue this girl romantically before I move away for school. We have been exceptionally good friends for nearly three years now, and recently we both have realized that all our mutual friends and our parents, to a slight extent, have been trying to match us together. In a brief conversation about it, we kind of laughed it off and agreed it wouldn't make sense for the main reason that I would be moving away rel relatively soon, uh, about eight months in the future. However, since that conversation, I haven't been able to stop thinking that maybe I should pursue her. She is a lovely, incredibly feminine and Christian woman who exudes life and joy everywhere she goes. Many of the qualities I have found to be lacking in other girls I find her to have in spades, uh, a conservative worldview, an incredibly tender heart, a deep yearning to be a mother, the list goes on. I've known her long enough to know that if I were to date her for a short period, I'm confident I would know if she was the one for me to marry or not. It would not take years of dating. Uh, the risk in pursuing her now is potentially damaging a truly meaningful friendship with her and her family as well. So, the Mr. Clavin, the one who truly deserves the title of lowercase g, lowercase k, God, King of the Daily Wire, any advice or guidance is very much appreciated. Let me ask you a question, Bradley. Are you out of your mind? <laughs> Crazy. Wait, let me just read this again. She is lovely, incredibly feminine, and Christian woman who exudes life and joy everywhere she goes, tender heart, a deep yearning to be a mother. 
what's wrong with you? Of course you should pursue her. <laughs> do, I, do I have to do everything for you? I mean, what, of course. What, what are you thinking? What do you think? And you're her friend. You know, you're, you're going to sit around and go, well, what if this? What if that? You're right. That All those things could happen. It could ruin your relationship. It could ruin your relationship with her family. It could end your friendship. But, uh, dude, <laughs> the game is worth the candle. Yes, pursue her. Go after her. You know, find out if you want to marry her. If you want to marry her, then marry her. Uh, yeah, she sounds great. She sounds great. If you don't, guess what? Somebody else will. So go ahead. Now. But don't even listen to the rest of the mailbag. Go ahead. Call her up. Um, I like the easy questions. From Julia, uh, I have a dating question for you and would love your male wisdom. My mother has joked with me to be less my... <laughs> <laughs> to be less myself early on with dating and has made me wonder if maybe I'm a little too transparent early on or if I show my personality too much on first, second dates. I think I have a good sense of humor, but also these days it doesn't seem like guys even care about that anyway, and maybe I come off as too much. Is there any merit from your perspective in being yourself a little less and playing the game early on? Thanks so much. Sincerely, clearly not my mother's favorite favorite child. Uh, no, I mean, I, I think there I think there is something to think about here. But no, it's not a good thing to not show a guy yourself because if he falls in love with somebody else, it's not going to work out, right? It's going to go bad um, because you're not you weren't honest with him. You know, he's going to be blindsided and he's going to be unhappy with it. Uh, and you are, I'm sure, you sound from your letter uh, lovable. I'm sure you are lovable uh, and. Uh, but there is something to think about. It's not, it's not, if you, if you meet a guy who doesn't want to laugh and you're a funny person, then that's not the right guy. You know, you want a guy who wants a funny person, if that's who you are. Um, you know, if it's important to you that you are witty and have a take on life, uh, you want somebody who's charmed by that and delighted by it. And I'm sure that somebody exists and I'm sure probably multiple somebodies like that exist. Um, so, but but you do want to ask yourself if something if a, a mechanism is happening that is maybe not positive for you if your dating life is not going well. Let me suggest a possible mechanism. Uh, let's say you feel that you that you don't like yourself. If you feel that you are not uh, a good deal, and and therefore you're kind of hiding yourself from a guy, but at the same time you're getting angry at him for the fact that you feel like you have to hide yourself. And then it's possible that some of your jokes are aggressive or unkind or unmanning, you know, or undercutting him because that's not the kind of humor that anybody likes. It's not that, you know, they, they like it when you do it to somebody else, but nobody wants, nobody wants to be with a girl who cuts the rug out from under him with her sense of humor. You want to laugh. Um, you know, my wife is one of the very few people who can make me laugh on command, essentially. Uh, but, you know, she doesn't do it by tearing me apart, right? So I, I do have to wonder if your own uh, sense of self is making you hide yourself and then making you angry at the guy because you're assuming he's not going to like you because you don't like you. So if, if the problem is that you don't like you, uh, that may that may be more of the problem than the fact that you're showing yourself, uh, because then your humor can be unkind and uh, retaliatory, and maybe that chases, uh, and that definitely would would chase guys away. So that's the problem. The problem you want to solve almost always in dating, almost always in dating, if you're having a hard time, the problem you want to solve is liking yourself, because you want to be a person that you like, and then other people will like you as well. And uh, you know, and I'm sure, and that's. It's not that hard to do, especially. You're not a villain. You're probably a, a lovely, sweet person. Uh, so maybe find out why you don't like yourself. And if that takes help, get help. Um, 
from Caleb. I love your video game segment this week and appreciated your perspective that it's how we choose to experience art that determines edification. You mentioned, though, that you thought most in-game stories were repetitive and simplified. I was curious if there was any franchise you found interesting. The Resident Evil series had a great deal of big pharma vibes to it and even had a full series of novels written to go with it. Uh, as a larger question, is it difficult to enjoy stories as an older person when everything reminds you of something you've read before? That's actually an interesting question. Uh, you know, I've read so much uh, that I do recognize patterns very quickly. I do know in a story because I do it for a living. For instance, after watching five episodes of Lost, I turned to my wife and said, I, they can't get out of this in an honest way. I'm not watching anymore. And I was right. They couldn't get out of it in an honest way. Uh, I, I just knew that they had paid too much, too heavily, heavy a price for their special effects. By special effects, I mean, oh, we just found a door in the middle of the jungle. You can do that once. You do it seven times in one episode. You're not going to be able to explain it, uh, except if it's a dream or you're dead, which was really the story of loss that they didn't want to tell. So, uh, so yeah, you know, I, I get bored very quickly. Uh, so when I've seen things before, when I figure out what's going on, I, I no longer want to watch. Uh, video games are not that complex story-wise. That's why the ones that I like uh, are the puzzle ones that are more suggestive and haunting and kind of don't really uh, tell you what the story is about all the way and really have to be unfolded. Um, but also something else happened. In the period, almost always, the first period that a, an art form starts out in is the most creative because there's things that haven't been done before. There's so many things that haven't been done before. So, you know, uh, when English drama really took off in Elizabethan England, that was its great moment. It doesn't mean that it had, didn't have great moments again, but that early time when no one's done anything before, when you're inventing the form, essentially, the novel form, you know, which comes in, uh, in uh, you know, kind of late in the 18th century, uh, you know, just so many uh, things to do with the novel. By the time you get to Ulysses, uh, uh, you, there's not that much left to do with it, and so it got, dies off for a while and maybe goes into other forms. Uh, so that was what happened with video games because no one had done it before. It was so creative in the early days. Uh, Myst and Dia Diablo and, uh, you know, Realms of the Haunting, everything was just a new, uh, powerful game. Uh, and so the form itself has, has gotten tired out and has reached the end of its first really productive, really creative uh, period, but that doesn't mean there won't be more productive periods ahead and more creative periods ahead. And it doesn't mean uh, that in even an unproductive period, great work won't be done. That's that's the thing. There can always be, as I as I constantly say, the best writer of the last generation was Tom Stoppard, a playwright. And there's a play, a form that has been done to death and has been dead forever. But still, Stoppard is the best writer going uh, in his time, and uh, and so that comes back. Uh, you know, yeah, you, I've seen a lot of stuff. I don't have to uh, experience ugliness anymore if I don't want to. I don't have to experience, uh, you know, things that get on, get, just make your nerves jangle if I don't want to, unless it's really well done because I've seen it all before. So that's kind of a relief. But on the other hand, when something really reaches me, when something touches me, it touches me more deeply than e anything ever has before because there's all those other things that have gone into it. And because as you grow older, if you pay attention, you become a deeper person. There's more uh, places for a story to go inside you and to move inside you. And it's really a wonderful experience. So you get it, you know, with old age, with, with age, the thing is, you lose stuff, but you also gain stuff. It's a very, very uh, interesting and powerful period of life. Uh, and actually, uh, kind of great, except for the fact that you see this wall up ahead. So, you know, that, that's the, uh, the honest answer to your question. I've stopped there. Uh, for those of you who aren't subscribers, so long. It's a shame. Uh, but if you subscribe, we've got 10 more minutes to go before you hit the Clavenless Week.